This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 45 of The History Files. We're recording this in the fourth week of February 2016 here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest where spring is threatening to leap up at any moment. This week we're straying from our actual past and tackling a genre from world fiction, alternate history. To lend some expertise in this topic, uh, we're delighted to have playwright, history buff, and all-around gentleman John Longenbaugh on board today as our special guest and Skype test subject. And here is John Longenbaugh. Hello. John is a Seattle-based writer and director. He's a successful arts journalist and has been for over a decade with reviews and articles appearing in a host of regional publications, including Seattle Weekly, City Arts, and Seattle Magazine. And he's won awards for his work from the Society of Professional Journalists and the Western uh, of Western Washington. Uh, it's a genre... Pardon me. If it's a genre of writing, he's probably tried his hand at it. His latest creation being Brass, a multi-platform steampunk adventure serial. That's a radio series, a film, begins shooting in April, and a series of live stage shows. The latest of which, Fatal Foot <laughs> Footlights, opens at Seattle's Theater Schmieter on April 1st. So, let's jump into this. Um, so... John and I have talked over the last few years a lot about, you know, this alternative history kind of thing because we're both into steampunk and um, and whatnot. And so, John, you you wrote a, 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 a you wrote a play, right? Yeah, uh, a play, and then some other sort of elements to it, a kind of a multi-platform thing. I just want to say first off, actually, Gordon and Nancy, I'm really uh, it's just a it's a real honor to get a chance to to chat with you guys on this. Um, I listen to the history files every week. Um, it, it's it's such a wonderfully accessible way of taking a look at history, especially for someone like myself who um, I'm kind of a an enthusiast and not really a historian. Uh, thus, my kind of interest in stuff like alternate history stuff. Uh, but I, I just love how you make the um, uh, the the debates of history seem uh, um, not just present, but also um, fun. The, oh, they're, thank they're, you. They're wonderfully approachable, and um, and you know I think that that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to steampunk, and also one of the things I. I've noticed about the way that you approach steampunk is, um, you know, a lot of folks who are maybe more serious uh, about their about being historians tend to get very sniffy about steampunk because they'll say, well, you know, that's that wouldn't make any sense in this particular way. Or, um, but I, I can remember one of the panels that I, I saw you giving a reading at where you were sort of saying, 
I think he said something along the lines of metals brighten up a jacket and you sort of had pulled out three or four and sort of showed where they could kind of go. And I thought that's, that's really a very different approach from a historian, you know, <laughs> I, I think, yeah. So, um, so I think that, that that is the, what I enjoy about steampunk is that fun aspect. Well, thank you. Yeah. Coming from a, you know, very serious history, uh, background and also having spent a lot of time in um, historical re re reenacting and recreation where I'm surrounded by people who are serious, what they call, you know, thread counters, stitch counters, you know, <laughs> the buttons have to be right, all that sort of thing. I really found steampunk to be liberating because there's so much stuff well the alternative history of it doesn't have to be exactly this way there's a million different venues that could come from point a it can go to a through z and a hundred thousand other different directions and you know i guess you're getting into the physics of history that way but still and that's where we get to alternative history is you know you start at point a and what could have happened had Let's say um, Julius Caesar's parents n decided not to make love that night. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, history would have been different. And anyway. Yeah, that's one of – and, you know, I've been thinking some about this because I think it's pretty obvious to people who read, say, science fiction that one of the reasons that steampunk is maybe more resonant than some other forms of alternate history. It's more – maybe more interesting to folks than, say, something like diesel punk or um, alternate history that reimagines, say, um, you know, the 17th century is, is not only was um, – the, the the late Victorian period, the birth of the science fiction uh, genre as we kind of know it, um, there was stuff going on before that, kind of scientific romances, Rabelais, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that it's also – it was the birth of the alternate history narrative. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, um, so, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, the first great compendium of alternate history, which came out in 1931, I think it was called uh, – if it had happened or something along these lines, um, was a collection of writers who we think of more as sort of Edwardian Victorians, like Hilaire Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, Winston Churchill had a uh, piece in there. Really? Yeah. Um, and and a lot of these went back to this uh, this pre-World War One period where a, a number of, of um, books and essays came up, out um, which were all interested in what if there was a war in Germany won? Um, so, and that was one of Churchill's early essays, as I recall. Mm. It, it was this. It was. It. We aren't talking fiction. We're talking essentially kind of think essay pieces where people are imagining. Um, you know, they they write they write as it were a um, a, a history that um, of events that hadn't occurred yet, but in. It really, what they're doing is is they're writing the beginning of alternate histories. Uh, it's more that than kind of like strictly speaking science fiction. So, um, so I think that that's one of the uh, you know, and I, I've been kind of trying to figure out if that's because of the way that the Victorians saw history. You know, they were um, they they were trying to put together a form of history that didn't just reflect, say, ancient times but reflected the way that the world was and using it in a predicative sense. Um, 
but anyway, that's kind of been in my head a lot recently as I've been sort of monkeying around um, in the worlds of steampunk and also the worlds of the Victorians. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, uh, steampunk is one form of alternate history, and there's a lot of ways of getting there. But as you said, there are um, countless sort of narratives that imagine uh, um, the way that the world would be different if uh, a small event took place, kind of a for one of a nail scenario where exactly um, the 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 one small event occurs and everything changes, or ones that where there are vast differences. Um, Harry Harrison's West of Eden, for example, which imagines what the world would have been like if there had been a sentient dinosaur species. Hmm. So so the changes can be very small or very large, kind of depending on on how much you enjoy history and also maybe what the results. Of putting forward a narrative, you know, kind of what's the inner dynamism is of that happens to be. Right. The <clears throat> excuse me. The um, you know, in a way, I was thinking about this a little earlier that um, almost any historical novel can, in some regards, be considered alternate history because you know you're inserting your character into this broader reality. And that character didn't happen, <laughs> right? You know, they weren't really there. Um, like, say, with the uh, uh, O'Brien series, the Patrick O'Brien series, um, our hero Jack was actually not at, uh, you know, ex naval battles and stuff, and these things didn't actually happen the way they are said to be. Although, again, with within a, a historical novel. Uh, the context hasn't changed much. You're just, you know, inserting your characters. But the the concept of taking, you know, starting with, you know, point a point and then having something go differently. I think uh, that World War One, you know, it was one of those massive tragedies wherein everybody looks back and says man, what would have it have been like had that not happened? Where would we be had the, this Victorian Edwardian period continued uh, unabated? And um, so you get, you know, there's, there's this yearning for that Victorian past, that mythological, joyous Victoria, that Victorian era that didn't actually exist. Uh, but it sure sounds fun, in re- you know, in retrospect. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, one particular path of, of um, alternate history tends towards um, this sort of nostalgia and perhaps an exploration of the way that things could have been more rich or more interesting. Um, so, you know, and certain, certainly some steampunk is like that. Some is, I think, darker. But then there's this flip side, which is all the dystopian stuff, you know, the classic right. what if Hitler had won the war um, so, sort of uh, – and, and and it's interesting seeing that those two um, those two senses of well it could have been better or it could have been a lot worse, uh, right. you know in um, in uh, in the case of uh, the Nazis winning the war for example, um, I there's a there's a lesser known book by Stephen Fry called Killing Hitler, which posits a, uh, a kind of both a time travel and a um, alternate universe idea where um, a figure goes back and figures out a way to 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 kill Hitler sort of by remote control more or less they make it so that Hitler was never born and um, the world that this person finds himself stuck in is a world with a different 
German fascist leader who was triumphant, <laughs> and this one yeah. had sterilized all of the Jewish people. Ah. So, and so it's it's in many ways it's even a worse world um, because he didn't kill him, so there wasn't a war, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, one of the books I wanted to bring up because he was a speaker at SteamCon, which is a event that we both went to here in Seattle. Um, the author's name is S.M. Sterling. And it's one of my favorite books. It's called Peshawar Lancers. And what is noteworthy about that is he posits that a there was a meteor strike uh, in the Atlantic, um, well, basically throughout the world, there was sort of a, a shower um, in 1878. And the it was caused an, an, an ice age, basically a nuclear winter. And the British Empire basically moved everything to India and what would have happened then after that and the story takes place in 2025 so you know it's still in our future but in a completely different future and they're using much more antiquated technology and of course you get you know lighter than air ships which are very popular in uh, in most alternative histories for for whatever reason I guess they're they're funner than than actual heavier than air aeroplanes, uh, but it's a it's an interesting posit of what what might happen if such a natural disaster occurs. And of course, he puts it plops it in the middle of the Victorian era uh, and posits what would happen. Technology would basically stay at pretty much at a standstill uh, for quite a long time. Yeah, I've heard that book uh, recommended by several folks, and what I think is very clever about what the author has done is he has taken a lot of the sort of standard steampunk tropes, the, the airships, the uh, Victorian uh, military and the rest, and he's really worked hard to find a rational reason why you could have a world that had all of those things in it, which yeah. is, um, you know, you, yeah, I, I think that there's a, where's that term in steampunk, justify your goggles? Right, justify your God, <laughs> and he does a good job of it. Yeah, and in a very you know, uh, it's interesting because I think that I, I'm not uncommon among a lot of folks who work in steampunk. Is that you, we do a fair amount of work in terms of alternate history, and then at some point we kind of say, well, and then something a little unconventional happens. You know, uh, something a little science fictiony or a little fantasy-like sort of creeps into it because um, we can't actually completely justify, uh, you know, the airships and the automatons and the, um, the all the other elements of what looks to be a rousingly fun world, but has a certain fundamental implausibility. And uh, yeah. the, the the Lancers, I think, does a really wonderful job of sort of saying, well, you know, let's try to make everything plausible. Right. Right. And yeah, exactly. Does And he does a really good job of it. What I always think is amusing is with the whole fascination with airships that those require internal combustion engines and everybody's into steam power. So like <laughs> uh, there's a incongruity here. But oh, well, because it's it's all for fun. No one cares. Well, that's something people get hung up on, too. It's like, well, this is steampunk. So everything has to be steam powered. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, it's it's steampunk covers the a whole genre, but it doesn't it doesn't predetermine your technology where everything has to be steam. You know. Uh uh. <laughs> <laughs> you, 
<laughs> you can have you know crazy unknown minerals make up some unobtainium type mineral that gives you anti-gravity Jules Verne or you know something like yeah. that electricity Jules Verne uh-huh. exactly well that's what the Nautilus was run on was electricity and then of course Disney in their version which would have I guess is basically steampunk um, because it's alternative history in a lot of ways there the film was it 1954 film the Nautilus or uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea um, they actually in, sort of you know suggest that it's nuclear power yes which is like yes. ooh 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 that's cool <laughs> yeah. futuristic how futuristic <laughs> exactly and Vern, in some of his later fiction, did sort of postulate something that looks a lot like nuclear power, as did H.G. Wells in, um, in I think, his last novel, uh, which he got a, a visit from the War Department about, um, Things to Come. So, um, but, but I think that those also do point to one of the things that steampunk plays on that isn't necessarily alternate history that steps outside of the seriousness of saying if this event had occurred, had occurred differently is – it, at its best, it also plays with ideas in the sort of slightly um, informal, uh, maybe even you know, knowingly kooky way that H.G. Wells and Verne did. You mm-hmm. know, that very much the you know, I'll, how do we get to the moon? Well, we'll invent an anti-gravity paint and paint uh, a large bathysphere, and that's how we'll get to the moon. You know, without makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, well, you know. there's there's that book, not book. It's the the game. Uh, was it 1889? Space 1889. Right. Uh, in which something like that. You know, basically, the British Empire conquers Mars in 1889 with this sort of unobtainium paint stuff, and they're using their Martini Henry single shot rifles to blast, you know, Martians, like. Wow, that's <laughs> that's kind of cool. <laughs> well, I think all of that does two things that good science fiction does. Is that one, it facilitates a way of just telling a fun, interesting story. But the second is that it allows us to um, look at particular elements of our society. And in many ways, we're still Victorians. I mean, we've really oh, inculcated a lot of that society into our own lives. Well, we blame and- the Puritans, but it's really Victorian. <laughs> Well, and and I think that that allows us to sort of look at it, it just it, just in the example you gave, for example, um, colonialism. You know, yes. fundamentally and frankly, it's hard sometimes for us to realize that we are still engaged deeply in colonialism. Um, but once you get it out to a point where you can sort of play a little fast and loose with the rules and have you know Martian tribesmen leaving upon your um, your your brigade you do start to think a little more about the way that we create narratives and romanticize our position versus the rest of the world, for example. Absolutely. No, that's a very good point that as in all good literature, you're commenting, no matter when you're writing about, you're commenting upon your, your own culture right now. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, steampunk is absolutely no different. We take some, you know, we pick and choose what we like um, some of the things we don't like about modern culture is its sort of the omnipresentness of a lot of technology. Yet we pull some of this earlier technology in and make it do what modern technology can do. Right. So right. 
you know, like we've got our, you know, steam powered telephones and <laughs> or whatever. Of course, telephones were around in the 1880s. So I guess that's nothing new, uh, literally. But, you know, anyway, the the, the idea that we can um, utilize older concepts to do a more modern function. Right. Right. Seems, seems to be very pre- pre- prevalent, present. Anyway. Yes. So I, I know that both of you is kind of history historians and sort of history buffs have certain things in historical fictions that drives you both crazy. And I, and I'm wondering what those, when you're, if you read an alternate history, at what point do you find yourself saying, Oh no, 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 no. It can't have that in it because you know, that, that strains what I want in terms of plausibility or what is it? What are your breaking points in terms of what you think of as a, as going too far with an alternate history story? Well, actually, we were just talking about this yesterday. Uh, it's not an alternative. It's not an alternate history, but eh, in a way, it became that. The uh, the film Tombstone. Uh, hmm. We were talking about how I think it was in Tombstone. Maybe it was in. It was in Wyatt Earp. Wh- oh, it was in Wyatt Earp. Okay, in Wyatt Earp, you have the wives talking about some very modern concepts. Yeah, there's that- a. I I prefer the movie Wyatt Earp over Tombstone as a good, like docu drama kind of thing I think it's a better biopic but and Tombstone's more fun it's more quotable and everything and a lot of people would disagree with with me on Wyatt Earp think it's too long whatever and it's wonderfully cast it's got great historical accuracy as far as the folkways and the costuming and everything except that one scene there's a there's a moment when they're in um, here comes that hissing again dang it anyway uh, anyway, they're in, they're in Tombstone and they're having this backyard barbecue thing, and the wives are all, "Hey, you know, we'd like a say in things, and you are always making these unilateral decisions." And and I and I don't have a problem with that conversation. It's just the way it's written really right. takes you out of of the movie because it feels so 20th century. It feels so you know, votes for women, women's lib, and. And I'm not saying there weren't strong women, and women ran things very well behind the scene, the power behind the throne kind of thing back back then. But I, but that conversation is presented in such a colloquial sort of 20th century way that it takes takes me out of the action. Now, in that case, it's it's a matter of inconsistency. First of all, if if the movie was about a fictional character or was posited as alt history all the way through, and people talk like that, okay, fine, whatever. But it's supposed to be a you know this biodrama so it doesn't work for me in that way i'm very forgiving of things like steampunk things that'll take me out of a steampunk novel or an alt history movie what what will take me out are are basically things that are completely implausible if your magic system for lack of a better term posits that you have anti-gravity paint to get you to the moon that's fine that's sweet that's quaint that's Jules Verne but but in that same story then if you're all gritty realism about other things then it then it sort of doesn't make it it doesn't fit together I think just consistency is the most important thing when it comes to alt history well it's interesting speaking of both Verne and Wells Verne was definitely the guy who said okay I'm going to posit this and this is how it works and having to get into the nitty gritty, Wills on the other hand said, "Yeah, and this is what this, they use this stuff, and that's how and and that's my that's my vehicle for getting to where I want to go." It just works because it is hand wave, hand wave. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> which which I think is great. Either one works for me, uh, but like 
like Nev said, you know, it's it's got to it's got to be more or less consistent. Well, yeah, they're consistent. H.G. Wells is consistent with his hand wavium, and Jules Verne is consistent with his Tom Clancy-esque <laughs> diatribes on technical <laughs> errata. <laughs> Ten pages later. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that is a point, is that, um, you know, both of them, uh, as it turns out, neither of them were particularly plausible. You know, Verne shoots them to the moon in a gun, and they would have all been flat as pancakes before they left the atmosphere. Oh, details. Gravity would have had something, yeah. <laughs> None of the G's you would have to absorb. <laughs> but 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 it is it uh, you know the difference between essentially the engineer and um, the journalist as as well saw himself. I think that that tension is um, it, it's it's often I I think shows up in historical fictions as well. The the person the people who are as you said kind of thread counters versus the people who. Uh, you know, say, well, how about if there's a flying unicorn in front of the battalion? Right. <laughs> Hopefully, right. you know, the best yeah. fiction has to kind of come somewhere in the middle. Oh, I, I guess I like my fiction to have my alternative fiction to at least be consistent within the rules of physics as we know them. I'll, I'll tell you what'll bump me out of an alt history story, and um, this will be an example of a good one, but it could have gone horribly, horribly wrong. It's the who wrote the 1632 series, Gordon? Er, Eric Flint. Yeah, the Flint. Yeah, he started it. And now he's he allows other writers to write in his universe too, so it's really gone crazy. It's really expanded. But he does a. It's a for people who aren't familiar with that series, basically a chunk of what West Virginia. Yeah, the sphere of West Virginia yeah, ends up somehow becomes extracted from our space and time and gets bumped back to 1632. In and basically replace there's a swap, so I'm sure, you know, a swap of 1632 what would become West Virginia gets plopped back into the 20th century. So right. you've got this whole population of people that are plopped back into 1632 and it's like how are we going to cope? How are we going to integrate with the current culture? How are we going to do things? We are we, you know how are we going to cope and he doesn't pull a Vern and go go crazy with explaining things ad nauseum but it's like how are we going to generate electricity how are we going to make medicines how are we going to feed people how are we going to you know do whatever with the resources available to us oh oh and i i of course it doesn't make any sense I've, it's not the same place because they're plopped into germany know, germany 1632 yeah. germany not 1632 North America, which would no, be it's it's in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, so uh, so in a way, it's not just an alternative history; it's also a post-apocalyptic one because right. Germany in 16, 1632 was basically in the midst of an apocalypse. Yeah, and he does a really nice way of making everything plausible and explaining. Another uh, author who does a really good job of of uh, making things plausible without explaining your ear off is Taylor Anderson in his Destroyer Men series. Absolutely. And that's another where you've got some guys from World War II in a, in a, in a World War II uh, battleship being plunked back into a prehistoric Earth. But not only is it prehistoric Earth, but it's a prehistoric alt-Earth. So it's not just dinosaurs and volcanoes it's it's a whole different or is it it's not even back in time i guess they're just in a it's an alternative it's an alternate um timeline parallel universe yeah where where dinosaurs have involved with evolved with intelligence and then you've got this this bipedal race they're not humans it's not homo sapiens it's they've evolved from another critter who are yeah the lemurs who have uh, become another sentient race and again here you are in this primordial sort of crazy low-tech world how do i 
what are we going to do when we run out of gas? We're not a diesel fuel for this ship. What are we going to do when we run out of penicillin? What? How do we? How do we manufacture that? How do we make that work? What? Do, okay. How do we work within our limitations? And he and and. Uh, I got to jump in and make some corrections here. It's a destroyer, not a battleship, and they don't use diesel fuel. It's bunker fuel, bunker oil. Um, but okay, Taylor. Taylor can <laughs> kick me later. Taylor will be mad. Uh, yes, destroy. It's the. It's called the Destroyerman series. Uh, by Taylor Anderson, his first one, Into the Storm, um, is is it's just utterly amazing. It will uh, it's just in in enormously readable, yeah. and um, and I really really I, I know not only really like the book, but I really like the author too. He's a good friend of mine, and I'm going to brag a little bit. <laughs> the fact that the uh, the idea that he got for this uh, book came from a discussion that he and I had while working on this Alamo movie back in 2003 about, you know, famous last stands. You know, here we are at the Alamo talking about last stands. And one of the things he said, well, how about the, you know, American Asiatic Pacific uh, uh, fleet at the beginning of World War II, they got pasted by the Japanese and something that we really don't remember as a people is that the first six months of World War II we got thumped bad the Japanese used us hard and um, our soldiers and sailors and Marines fought very valiantly but it didn't do anybody any good because they you know they lost we we lost uh, up until somewhere in the midst of you know well, even after Midway, we still lost plenty of uh, plenty of ships and plenty of fights. But anyway, he posited this idea, and what would have happened in the midst of this had some of these guys gone off into this other world? Anyway, uh, it was a neat way of you know, sort of showcasing this forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, chapter. and there, you know, it it reminds me of the the classic. Uh, L. Sproctor Camp novel, uh, Less Darkness Fall, where a uh, uh, modern man gets thrown back into the uh, Roman Empire during its, its declining days, mm-hmm. and he decides that his job is going to be to keep the empire from falling. Um, one of the things that I, I find interesting about these, and in some ways, you know, we're, we're bumping up against the way the time travel and parallel universe books are often kind of one and the same. They get kind of mixed up. Mm-hmm. But, yes. but yes. both of them, I think, emphasize the way that the past really is a different country. Absolutely. And, and and um, w- you know, uh, understanding it is um, uh, is something where a modern historian always has to be aware of the the mistakes that are caused by their contemporary viewpoint not matching up with the way that the world was seen by people at that time. That's a very very good point. Point. That's something and- I run into reading historical fiction, historical romances, whatever. Is people who writers who cannot get out of that 21st century thought box they cannot get their brain around what a, how a person thought and what the pace of life was even 100 years ago let alone 300 years ago and and that'll drive me right out of a book if if, <laughs> if it's if they just they just can't it's bad enough when you have dialogue where they're using modern colloquialisms, but it's even worse where things just magically happen. Oh, we're in a we're stopping for the night on the Oregon Trail, and here's your chicken dinner. Well, where'd the chicken come from? <laughs> Who made the fire? You know, it it, it, it makes me crazy. 
Good. I do. If we kept talking about this, we would find things that really irritated both you guys <laughs> about fiction. Well, you know as well. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I very much appreciate your comment of the past is another country. Uh, they do things differently there. Uh, not only is the rent cheaper, but a whole lot of things are different. And the very idea that a modern human being, a modern, say a modern American, could drop back 100 or 150 years and fit right in is eh, somewhat ludicrous. It doesn't matter how good a historian you are, how much you've studied the minutiae of that culture, which most of our heroes don't when they're doing time travel. They're just sort of plopped there. It's going to be a culture shock. Uh, what was that? What was that TV show you were watching, Neb? The the Highlander one. Oh, oh, Outlander. Outlander. Oh boy, don't. Oh, that's a soapbox I'll never get off of once I start. <laughs> and I'm not the only person who whines about Outlander. I I wanted to like it so much. I love time travel stories, and I, it, and it's a wonderful period of history but this is to make a very long rant much much shorter this woman goes back in time from just post World War II England to late early 18th century it's supposed to be just before the the 45 or something like that yeah mid mid 18th century mid 18th century and it's wonderful but she never really has any kind of culture shock. She never really, it never really, you never see it in in the TV series anyway, and I, apparently by all accounts in the books, you never see it hit her hard that she is somewhere now where she's being ex- exposed to different microbes, she's being exposed to a different pace of life, and, a, and different thought, you know, different... Um, views on women and different views on anything and and she she just oh she just seamlessly fits right into the, this culture and everything goes fine it's like i call foul I mean, there's, oh, yeah. there's no struggle for her she she just seamlessly fits right in in a kind of a mary sue type way and well an, Amer- an, an english woman in 1945 was a whole lot more liberated than a scottish woman in 1740s yeah. <laughs> so the yeah, it would be a huge culture shock to to any of us. But I guess that's the fun part about steampunk is we don't have to deal with those culture shocks. And speaking of steampunk, <laughs> why, don't, why don't we segue right into what you've done with steampunk, John? Yeah. Let's talk about brass. I, I would love to chat about it a little bit. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, I, I think that, that one of the things that I was interested in, we talked earlier about the way that um, – alternate histories tend to fall into one of two camps, either uh, utopian or dystopian to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the world would have been better if, the world would have been worse if. And I think especially contemporary science fiction is very much enthralled to uh, the idea of dystopia, the idea of how, um, you know, really you can, um, all of these versions of, of the world uh, man in the high castle style or yes. um, mm-hmm. where, where where it's it's even worse you know and that <laughs> and the the fiction itself is just a reflection on um the the more negative aspects of contemporary society yes. and th- it's very rare that you come out of one of them and with a kind of a joyful feeling about it yeah. <laughs> boy man in the high castle for sure <laughs> yeah um but uh but there there's also 
these other sorts. And you know, one of my favorites, uh, a guy who wrote a lot of alternate history, Harry Harrison, uh, wrote a kind of a charming book in the 1970s called A Transatlantic Tunnel Hurrah. And it's, <laughs> it's about, um, it's set in America, but it's an America that lost the war of independence and Washington, Washington was hanged as a traitor. As a matter of fact, uh, the hero of the book is a descendant of Washington who's trying to clear his ancestor's name. Oh. And um, you would certainly think that that could be a very dark and dystopian world, you know, where the United States never got its independence. But Harrison kind of plays with instead with the idea of, well, maybe actually things worked out just fine. And they probably you know? would have, frankly. <laughs> well, and so so this is the whole ex excitement is that they're building a tunnel between Britain and America, and um, and you know I I think there it's certainly in his contemporary world um, some of the less interest less um, pleasurable things about the Victorians uh, are, are there. Women have just gotten the vote, for example, in the 1970s, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, not that they got a lot in a better deal in our world. Um, but, uh, but, but that kind of somewhat joyous, happy idea of uh, steampunk was something I really wanted to explore in brass. Yeah, well, so, just to interject one little thing, yeah. I like the idea of a dystopian history in, you know, alternative history in which we end up like, you know, the horror of horrors like Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible thing. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Rock and roll was never invented. And, yeah. you know. <laughs> there, there couldn't be a British invasion. Yeah. Oh, my oh. goodness. No Beatles? Ah! <laughs> the horror. Um, so, uh, so, in any case, so the idea with Brass instead was to kind of um, look at a Victorian era where it's about the best of all possible worlds that could have been imagined with a British Empire. Is uh, that the empire itself is more colonial, but um, but there is a, an increasing sense because the colonial aspect happened earlier. This is a world with uh, where the Babbage engine has been turned into an effective computational device. Mm -hmm. it's not exactly a laptop. It takes up a city block, but it's still, you know, it allows you to calibrate, say, your guns mm -hmm. in a fashion that wasn't possible in our own historical world. Um, so all of the conquests have happened earlier and a progressive movement is kind of ascendant in this British Empire. Um, one of the historical differences is that um, Albert is still alive. In oh, very good. I love that. That's neat, yes. Well, and, and you know, the thing is, is that um, in a lot of ways, probably historically, it's, it wouldn't have made a lot of difference. It's not like Victoria was off leading the charge of uh, the Light Brigade or anything. Um, no, but, but Albert was a, was, a, was a very, very positive influence on the British... On, on British culture. After all, he sort of brought Christmas <laughs> with him. But other than that, I mean, he was a very yeah. positive... And, and Victoria really set the tone for that whole two-thirds of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And, and because she was perpetually in mourning, I think it would have been a different world if Albert hadn't died. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Appreciate I like that idea of having Albert continue on. Well, and, and maybe that kind of also points to the way that I'm also interested not just in the um, the war game aspect of, of uh, alternate histories. Uh, you know, what if Manassas had turned out differently? Well, well, you know, that's the kind of thing that keeps people playing um, board games um, yes. forever. And, you know, there is a real pleasure, I think, in sort of trying to work out 
what the world would be like if military victories had occurred differently. But as you've really, you know, as you both have really pointed out on so many of these podcasts, history is not just a series of military victories and defeats. It's it's also about um, individuals, the effect that they have on the society, mm-hmm. um, economics, clearly, and um, so that that particular sort of way that a world changes if, for example, um, you know, one individual lives who wasn't a military commander but was tremendously influential on the most important social person of the British Empire, how mm-hmm. would the, those things have changed. Um, the one bit of little magic that I throw in there is that I have an inventor come up with a um, free and clean source of energy. Oh, Tesla. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, I have I have a sort of early 19th century Tesla who comes up with something called the etheric battery that you can run all sorts of stuff on. And so that that's how I kind of get away with without diesel engines on my air airships and uh you know those other sort of things that are more fun than factual. Mm-hmm. Um But that so, but yeah. that's okay. That's your magic system and it works. And it's not outside the realm of possibility either. It really isn't. Well, I mean, if you if you follow Tesla stuff, yeah, yeah, or at least the 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 it's that Venn diagram of possibility and fun, right? right. Is that you're always trying to, um, you know, I, I yeah. So um, so that was kind of the overall idea, and and for me, um, I started. You know, I'm a playwright primarily. That's really my background. I've I've written a lot more fiction in the last few years, but because of that, fundamentally, my interest is always in the way that human beings interact in kind of sometimes small intimate gatherings, mm-hmm. and so um, so really all of the world of brass, all that kind of. Um, historical fiction, parallel, um, you know, alternate history stuff came about because I just saw this family. I saw this family of uh, Victorian science geniuses. And once I started to think about them, I realized, oh, well, that's steampunk. And I would kind of left it in that vague, there's, I'm sure there's airships somewhere <laughs> and Babbage machines. And it it was only as I started to explore more of these people and ask, well, how did they get here? What were they doing before that? What are they doing next? That the um, the alternate history aspect uh, really started to kind of take form and shape. Um, you know, and I think that that's one of the things about um, some fiction. I, uh, you know, I know that um, Man in the High Castle, which is a, a – I might feel slightly mixed about the TV series, but the um, the book is one of my favorite alternate history books. But it's pretty clear that um, it, it didn't come from Philip K. Dick's sort of desire to just sort of play this historical game. You know what I mean? There isn't some sort of like, well, let's figure out, you know, if the Battle of the Bulge had gone in this particular way. He's not really all that interested in that. What he's interested in looking at is the way that um, the victors of the post-war society changed the world. And so there are all yes. these these interesting parallels, but it all comes to me again from this position of um, wanting to know about the way that people live in this world, not so much about all the details of the way that the world itself works. Yes, uh, it was very, <clears throat> excuse me, I really liked in, at least in the film, I sadly I haven't gotten down, around to reading the, the, the short story that, or the book, uh, Man in the High Castle, but in the series, it shows the disdain that the Japanese conquerors have, the occupiers have for the Americans. It's like, oh, 
that's how we treated the Japanese. Well, yeah. yes and no. That's yeah. Yes, but right. I think what he's doing there is showing, allowing us to see a different perspective to colonialism. Yes, definitely and the, that. The, getting the perspective of, oh, this is what it's like to be on the receiving end. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I totally see that. It it almost feels like you know British British the British in colonial India, where. We we tolerate you and we appreciate you, but but use the other door. Use the servants' entrance. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I suppose in a in a way that it's you know one of the things that I think that the that the that Dick does so well, and not only that, but his other fictions is um, gives you a really amazing sense of of what it means to just um, pick up and look at the newspaper in that world. Mm-hmm. You know that there's this that there's this sense of um, it, the emotion that is attached to being a human being and the way that that is reflected or not reflected in the world that we know. Um, you know, there's a kind of a deep, tragic mourning and sadness about the man in the high castle that um, that I think is a, you know, it shows if history goes the wrong way, if we allow it to go the wrong way, this is the world that we would then inherit. Um, so, and and in the the absolute opposite of that is what I wanted to do with brass is to say well our you know we have such a dire view in so many of our fictions these days you know in, in the most popular cable television show in America is about the dead eating the brains of the living <laughs> yes. uh, you know it says something yeah, yes. I, can't get, I can't get my brain around that <laughs> but but I think it does show that we're we're kind of enamored of nihilistic visions right now and I don't necessarily I think that there's truth to them but there's also maybe the idea that um, we're it's kind of self-indulgent and I, I'm more interested in sort of looking at the world as it is and asking, well, what are some potential solutions? And, and you know, the, one of the things I love about the Victorians, and I've, I've talked with you about this before, Gordon, is is the way that um, self-doubt just was not part of their vocabulary. <laughs> you got that right. You know, and and for good or real but you just have to say on some level wow those guys just accomplished amazing things they were very self-confident and and they knew that they were right yeah yeah and it kind of feels like i would like to imagine we could have some of that without the negative aspects in terms of the way that we think about ourselves and our and our own our own history these days well and and you know that was very much adopted by the americans of the 19th and early 20 well most of the 20th century the whole can do attitude the rosie the riveter um you know we can make this happen and that's been lost in the last you know 50 years and you know i was just thinking and when you when you started mentioning this, that oh, this is very Kennedy esque. Yeah, oh yeah, I certainly think so. Um, you know that that particular sort of um, I, I wrote a play once called How to Be Cool that was all about uh, the 1962 <laughs> World's Fair, which to me oh, was yeah. a, a fascinating time. You know, it was the last time that Seattle really had a chance to to actually be cool, I suppose. But it also was a kind of an apex of American culture. I um, was there. I was there. <laughs> You were there? I, w- I, I went to the 1962 World's Fair. No yes. kidding. He was yeah. just a little shaver. I was a little bitty guy. I barely remember it. But I remember the Orange Julius that I got. I loved that. that I don't, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what? one of the amazing things about that is that it was all about tomorrow. It's all about the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this wonderfully optimistic vision of what the future could be that we just seem to have really turned away from. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's possible to read history and recognize the, uh, the sins and the errors of the past and um, without necessarily just thinking, well, you know, it's all awful. It's all been awful for as long as we go. <laughs> we, we, we tend to pick and choose the worst parts to, to dwell on or the best parts and ignore what doesn't fit. I know a lot of people want to, to focus on, you know, shall we say the Marxian dystopia of 19th century industrial, you know, Western world. And then other people want to focus on, you know, what it was like to be in the upper classes. Well, there was a whole lot of other stuff going on too. And we, you know, yes, these things were there, but there was a growing middle class of people that were by far and away the majority living perfectly nice lives. Right. You know, that, that weren't, you know, bopping around in ocean liners across the Atlantic, but they weren't, you know, slaving away either. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have a, shall I say a positive view about things? Right. Right. Well, or at least, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to me any more of a falsity than a tremendously rigorously, um, negative view. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, such things as, you know, between night, say 18, well, between Waterloo and the outbreak of World War I, so 1815 to 1914, you had this explosion of, of economic uh, you know, endeavor. And people went from being you know, pretty much not that different from their ancestors of several hundred years before to 1914, people were driving cars, flying in airplanes, Taking you know Zeppelin rides, steamships, steam trains, you name it, telephones, stuff that we take for granted as being very modern was was around a hundred years ago too, right? And it came out of that Victorian self confidence. Yes, yes, yeah. We can we can change the world. We can make it a better place through technology, <laughs> and they did. And- there's just a tendency to think, well, if it's if it's going to be serious, it has to be dark. If dystopian is serious, and anybody who has a positive uh, scenario for uh, some alt history or any kind of spec fiction, that well, if it's if it's positive, then that's not serious. It's just whimsical, and it's maybe it's for kids or whatever. And 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 I like what you've done with brass. You've made it fun and whimsical and entertaining, and yet. It's, you know, it's pretty solid. It's, there's some meat there. Well, thanks. That's really kind. I, you know, more than anything, I, I just want to stuff this work full of fun. And I want it to just get nice and fat with fun. And um, to me, some of that means that you have to have people who believe in a better world. The year is 1885, but not one that would be familiar to you message for you, sir. You know, it is tiresome having the world's greatest detective as one's mother. Don't be silly. What's the word? I have a half dozen armed with cutlasses. Cutlasses? These fine gentlemen behind us? Yes, father. You and Gwendolyn deal with them? Yes, father. Ha! Hurrah! Target practice! No guns, you silly girl. This is an airship. (laughs) Gwendolyn, are you all right, my dear? Cyril just knocked out my swordsman! The continued security and stability of the Empire relies on your efforts. So, you know who I am. I do. 
That's why I took your stick. Weapons out, men! (laughs) (laughs) But he's gone! Numbskulls! Idiots! We mustn't let him escape! What is our next ritual? Traditionally, it is walking out. All right. Hang on! Oh, my! Oh, Albert, you naughty thing. We are much amused. Join us in one week as we once again visit with the first family of the realm, Grass. Well, I do appreciate your comment, though, about uh, a lot of the dystopian fiction of today, you know, zombies or whatever, is kind of self-indulgent. You know, it really is. Yeah, I, th- you know, I, I, as I said, I don't think that there's any, uh, at least among my social circle, there's no end of reminders of um, of how badly uh, well, white men, of which I am one, have sort of screwed up the world time and again. And and it's it's true, we certainly have. And um, you know, there's that great line from the History Boys. Uh, the play by Alan Bennett with a woman saying, I'll tell you what history is. It's men w- walking forward and women following with a bucket. You know, there is this kind of this, this sense that men do awful things and and uh, everyone else just has to kind of deal with them. Oh, the w- the I, women aren't entirely innocent, though, either. There's plenty of them who have egged those men on. <laughs> this is true. And if we were talking American Indians, then the Indian woman would be carrying a pack behind the man. But yes. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So w- women have just had the, a cruddy deal for about as long as, as you know, history can show. But, but I don't think that there's anyone who doesn't, in, at least in my circle of relatively privileged, mostly sort of educated white people, who doesn't have these messages, who doesn't know this. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe at times, you know, the, if we're going to imagine other possible worlds, uh, the, you know, alternate histories, I don't think it's necessarily such a bad idea or even such a regressive idea to think, well, if, can we imagine one or two that things turned out at least as good, if not better? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, just to counterbalance things, you know, we white males have screwed things up, but we also made it the way it is in the first place with the technology. Um, you know, so good and bad, here we stand. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't think that um, things would have been significantly different had another group uh, gotten some of the same, shall we say, uh, geographic advantages uh well i think know. if i think if harry harrison's dinosaur people were were around things might be a little different but we'd probably be on the menu yes <laughs> I, I, I think i think trump would still be leading in the polls it, do you think that? i think so yes it probably would be now that's dystopian that's dystopian <laughs> oh my goodness yeah well we could go on for hours about that one um in fact, I probably will one of, the, one of these days. But at any rate, no, I think it's it's marvelous having a, a, a positive outlook and a positive rather than dystopian future to, or past, shall we say, future past um, to, to, to delve into because there are some marvelous things that, you know, we of Western society, Western civilization have done and had some of the more short-sighted individuals not been able, you know, sociopaths not taken the lead and taken um, things 
in a different tack, we would probably be in a much better position. But, you know, sadly, the course of empire makes its way and sociopaths rise to the top. Um, and so and there we are. They, they so often do. Though that does remind me, you know, I was looking at um, going back to our, you know, the, the inf there are so many um, what if the Nazis won sort of fictions around. And there's a, there's a fascinating one I don't know if you've come across by Norman Spinrad called The Iron Dream. No, which which is probably about the one of the weirdest um, alternate history books that you'll read, but it's kind of fascinating. What it is, it, it imagines that Adolf Hitler had, instead of becoming a uh, who he was, went to America and became a pulp science fiction writer in the <laughs> 1930s. And this is the Iron Dream in his book. He's written this sort of space opera about the um, the amazing triumphs of the master race. And it's being reviewed by a future historian who's talking about, you know, some of the strange tropes in this guy's writing. So the book itself is fictionally authored by an, an alternate Adolf Hitler who instead of becoming a, uh, a, a fascist uh, psychopath became a terrible science fiction writer. And, well, he was uh, a terrible painter, so I guess <laughs> it makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> but, well, it, but he was a writer. We certainly know that. And he wrote Mein Kampf. So, you know, he, the man could put a pen to paper, whether it was, you know, logical or not. That's a whole different thing. But, but anyway, that, that's, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, that's a fun one to come across. <laughs> So, well, I think we're probably at about the end of our, our allotted time here, aren't we? Yep, we're coming right up on it. Okay. So, any any other stuff you want to toss in there, John? Oh, you know, um, the more I looked at all this stuff about uh, alternate history, the more sort of um, I realized that I think we could just touch the tip of the iceberg, even of just probably favorite books that you and I have both read or um, TV shows or the rest. Um, but... I just I, what I like about alternate histories is uh, at their best they do the same thing that um, I think a good historian does, which is um, they they make the the past seem um, nearer somehow, a little more accessible. Yeah, yeah, and um, and. You know, I think all historians are guilty of a certain degree of wish fulfillment anyway. But oh, yes. one of the fun things about alternate histories is that it just gives them a chance to um, uh, just go nuts with that. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. Indulge oneself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, you know, I certainly got several of the several books in my head on that. I just have, I'm too lazy to actually put pen to paper and do anything about it. But, but yeah, it, it's true. Is that all historians have an axe of some sort to grind. There's certain wishful thinking going on in whatever it is that they're talking about. And so um, alternative history is a nice venue for doing that quite legitimately. Yeah. It's what been a pleasure. Of fun. Yeah. And um, I guarantee we're going to do this again with you so that we can actually, well, who knows, maybe we'll just pick a book uh, or series, read them and tear them apart. <laughs> Anytime, you guys. Boy, I love how enthusiastic you both get when I get a chance to hear you be critical about fictions. So, Funny how that works. <laughs> I have many soapboxes. I store the spare ones in the garage. Yeah, they're different heights. Yeah, so. it depends. It depends on what we're talking about as to how, how vociferous we get. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty easy to get us spun up and... and uh, 
pontificating at length. Well, we should probably <laughs> cut you loose because I know you have a dinner to prepare. I have I have a hot date hot, waiting for me, right. so I better get going. Okay. Good for you. So thank you very much for joining us. And uh, thank you for all our listeners for listening in on this. And again, John Longenbaugh, uh, sc- uh, playwright and author. And do catch his work, of Brass, yep. which is, again, opening, let's see. April, April 1st. 1st yeah. April 1st at the Theater Schmieder in Seattle. I will definitely have links in the show notes. Okay. Well, thanks again, oh. John. Thanks so much, guys. I had a great time. Thanks. As always, feel free to contact us with your questions or comments at historyfilesshow at gmail.com. We also run a really thank a few people. We want to definitely thank those of you who repost our shows and retweet us and all of you who listen no matter what. I also want to thank uh, Jim Wingren for his spiffy voiceover in our intro. Uh, we'll be definitely pinging him for things in the future. And uh, what else? About it. I thought that really was a cool interview with John. Yeah, John's John's a great guy, and um, I'll have links in the show notes where you can hear Brass. I think it's online in a couple of different places. I'll try and find it. It's a lot of fun. I'm in it, <laughs> and uh, it was it was fun recording it. So yeah, that'll that'll do it for this week. All right, so. Join us again next week for another exciting episode in The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash thf. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.